And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science, as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast initiative of University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies and Catholic Answers. I'm Dave Devil, an assistant professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas. I'm here, as always, with my co-host Liz Kelly, award-winning writer, speaker, singer, and for our purposes, the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Liz, how are you? Wonderful. Really looking forward to talking to our dear friend of Catholic Studies. Indeed. A longtime friend, Father Carolla, today. That's right. Father Joseph Carolla is a professor at the Gregorian University in Rome, and he has a long connection with uh, the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies program. Father Carolla, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Good to be with you and Liz today. Fantastic. Could you say a little bit about, uh, about your background and, and your work at, in Rome? Sure. So I'm a Jesuit. I entered the New Orleans province of the Society of Jesus back in 1980. Now, the New Orleans province doesn't exist anymore. We've combined with the Missouri province to form the central and southern province. And after my initial formation in the United States, I, I went to Rome in 1992, did a license, came back here to the States. I was at Tampa, Florida at the Jesuit High School there for two years and then returned to Rome in 96, began a doctorate at the Augustinianum. Uh, Patristic Institute near the Vatican, uh, with the destination to teach at the Pontifical Gregorian University. I began teaching part-time and while I was doing the doctorate, so that was in 1997, I began a seminar for young Jesuits. I added another seminar in 1999. I finished the doctorate in December of 2001, and then in February of 2002, I began my full-time teaching at the university, and I've been doing that ever since for about an eight-year period, I was an administrator at the university. I was the moderator of the first cycle studies in theology, so I had about 400 students under me in directing their uh, academic work at the university, primarily the seminarians and lay students and religious sisters who were pursuing that initial degree in theology. Uh, thanks be to God, I'm not an administrator anymore these days, <laughs> and uh, I am able to dedicate more of my time than to my own reading and writing, in addition to, to my teaching and the direction of seminars. Yeah, and you, we could mention, too, that for many years you were a, a chaplain for the St. Thomas Catholic Studies Rome program. Many of our students remember you fondly and have uh, great things to say about your formation with them. Yeah, correct. In 2005, I took over uh, from the then Father Cousins. Yeah. Uh, I took over the chaplaincy at uh, Bernardi at the University of St. Thomas's residence where the Catholic study students lived and was chaplain for 21 semesters, 21 very, very happy semesters mm, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Rome. And uh, now thoroughly rooted in the Twin Cities as a result, Iridian, the whole 
upper Midwest because of the students who I continue to be very close to as they move on with their own lives. So I'm very thankful. It's been an immense grace uh, to have been involved in that program and to continue to have a priestly uh, relationship with the students who have been a part of that program. We're very grateful for that. Well, let's let's jump into your article. As you mentioned, your your work has been in patristics, but you've ranged over the over the centuries. And this article, the academics, the artist, and the architect retrieving the tradition in nineteenth-century Catholicism is not about patristics per se, but it is about five figures who are looking back in time to say, how can we renovate uh, our history? Or how can we renovate? the Catholic community, in an age in which everything's changing. Um, what was changing in the 19th century? You describe the sort of the, the ground-shattering things that were happening in the church and the world. What, what's the context for describing these figures? So, first of all, to explain how I ended up in the 19th century, uh, my interest is clearly in the Church Fathers and the ancient tradition. That's what I teach at the university. But I've also had a deep interest in the 20th century ressourcement, the retrieval of the sources, the return to the sources in the 20th century, with figures like Henri de Lubac, Jean Danielou, Hansos Balthazar, and others. But that interest also included uh, an interest in John Henry Newman back in the 19th century. And slowly but surely, I began to see that what we think of as this return to the sources in the 20th century as being you know, almost a unique moment really was preceded by a century of a very similar dynamic of a retrieval of the sources or return to the sources. And John Henry Newman being the most obvious uh, individual for the Anglo-Saxon world, but there were others as well. Johann Adamurder, who features in that article, a German theologian, and uh, the Jesuits of the Roman College, uh, Giovanni Perrone, Carlo Passale, Clemens Strader, and Johann Baptist Franzmann. So my interest then moved more into the 19th century, out of the 20th, into the 19th, and really intrigued by how are they using the church fathers? How are they using the tradition? And in that research, what, what became very clear was the immense challenges that they faced in the 19th century. And so you, you, now you have to even go back to the 18th century and recognize um, the challenge that the, the Enlightenment was for the church. And then from that point, you even go back further. You go back to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Because, and this is what these individuals recognize, that at the time, in the 16th century, uh, the medieval synthesis, the proper balance between faith and reason that was achieved in the High Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas being an exemplary uh, figure in that regard, this got out of whack at the time of the Reformation. And faith was exalted but really to the detriment of reason. Mm-hmm. And so it was sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. And reason was then played down, and, and then obviously scholasticism disdained effectively. Well, that moved from that imbalance moved to a further imbalance, which then became the complete exaltation of reason to the absolute exclusion of faith from the public domain in the Enlightenment. And then you have the French Revolution, the French Revolution released um, basically a prolonged uh, period of terrorism against the Catholic Church, not only the Catholic Church, but in particular the Catholic Church in France, and then as the revolution spread throughout Europe. So by the end of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, there's a massive reconstruction that has to go on in Europe. It's not just 
simply a political reconstruction, but it's also an intellectual reconstruction. And in the church, the, the academic institutions were devastated. France was just wiped out. Religious life almost was completely destroyed in France. And so you, you have in the 19th century the great revivals of, of Solène, the Benedictine life, or with La Corbière, uh, Dominican life, etc. The Jesuits would have been wiped out, but we were already suppressed in 1773, so we weren't even around to be wiped out at that point. <laughs> but what, what happened was then these theologians are, are saying we, we have to be able to move forward, but the only way to move forward is to reclaim the tradition so that we have a proper foundation upon which to build. The other thing, the other vision that they had was, and if you think of the technologically frustrated in the 21st century, you know, when the computer goes, when the system collapses, what do you ultimately have to do? You just, you unplug and you reboot. But you can only reboot the system if the memory wasn't lost. If you lost your memory, then you can't ever reboot the system. Right, and that's, that's great. Crash. Mm-hmm. It's great. And so, so what ends up happening is these theologians say, we need to get behind the systemic crash which doesn't simply begin in the 18th century, but really in the 16th. And we need to then reboot, and we need to reclaim that memory. So what they're doing is they're looking back to the ancient church, to the medieval synthesis of the patristic tradition, and then also to what Trent provided. They're, they're replugging into that memory, but not to stay in the past. That was never their intention but was to, to reclaim the proper balance, especially between faith and reason, and then to move forward again. And so then you have that climactic moment in the 19th century of Vatican I and the document um, De Filius, which then re-strikes that proper balance between faith and reason. So it, it, there were immense challenges for these fellows. And even in the 19th century, by the way, just to conclude with this in terms of the challenges, you had the revolutionary year of 1848. The Jesuits, the Roman college, had to go into exile. They taught one day, and the next day they were all fleeing from the college and going off to England for the most part. Some even came to the United States, to Georgetown, uh, and they were in exile up to two years. When they got back, uh, the the building had been occupied by soldiers. There had been attempts at arson and destroyed parts of the building and the like. So it was really, they had to start yet again, but they they continually did so. In many ways, I mean, the church today is facing a similar kind of, (laughs) the ground is moving under us. There are lots of things that are collapsing. We could say that it's a continuation of many of those forces before. Um, Do you think that we're in a a similar position? Were were you thinking that when you were writing, writing this article of trying to provide us models? Uh, in our own time, a couple centuries later? Absolutely. So the, the culture wars of the 21st century, the first battles of the culture wars of the 21st century were actually fought in the 19th century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we appreciate, uh, it's just simply it's our lack of history, our lack of knowledge of history, perhaps. We, we would appreciate better if we had a better sense of the 19th century. But really, everything we're dealing with now, all of these very, very strong currents in society, they find their origins coming out of the Enlightenment French Revolution, and and then they're they're taking off throughout the 19th century. And these theologians are the first to respond. They're the first responders. They're right there on the front line. That's a great um, engaging in those engaging in those battles. Uh, and we're, we're continuing it. There's nothing new. There's really nothing new right. under the mm-hmm. sun right now. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why I believe that knowledge of the, of the 19th century is extremely helpful because we do recognize what we're dealing with today. And you have these individuals who are showing us ways to move forward that are life-giving. You speak uh, in this article, I was really intrigued about what you were saying about community, that this Mm -hmm. collection of minds that you've gathered, this sort of menagerie to address this uh, retrieval and revitalization, that one of the things that needed recovery was community, a sense of community. Uh, right. What do you mean by that? What did they mean by that? What does community have to do with any of this question? Okay. Well, let me um, start with the chaplaincy of Bernardi to answer this question, and then mm. we'll get to those. Yeah. Um, over the years as chaplain, uh, one of our chief goals was to form a community, a faith community there within the house. And we had in the house seminarians and lay students, lay men, lay women. Uh, we really had all of the vocations of the church represented in that house. I, I used to refer to it as my little parish, but I realized in the end it was actually my little diocese. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I had, I had yeah. seminarians from college seminary, major seminary, deacons. I had mm-hmm. um, the lay students, women who were going into the religious life. There was even every once in a while a married couple right. who would be participating. And so we really had all the vocations of the church present. And what I realized uh, there, that the community we formed around the Eucharist was rooted always in the Eucharist, and especially in the Wednesday nights uh, with uh, the community night that night, that it was a sustaining factor of all the good that we did in the house, that they did while they were in Rome, even with their studies. It became the context in which they flourished. And I remember one student once saying the night before, well, maybe it was the very morning they were leaving. I was over there perhaps at two in the morning to have mass before they got on the plane. And she said to me, she said, Father, I'm afraid to go home. Mm. And I, I said, why? And she said, because my group of friends at home are different. And mm, I, yeah. I've learned so much here. I've gained so much here that I'm afraid as I return back to that other set of friends, that I will lose all this. And I said, well, you don't have to lose any of this. And you have these friends now, and you have this community. And what became clear and clear to me was, we cannot live the Catholic faith outside of the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we can't be mavericks and lone rangers. We mm-hmm. really need the community to sustain us in the faith. Mm-hmm. That became so very, very clear. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were doing there. That's what Catholic studies is very much about. And in the 19th century, then, to, now to take that insight and, and to go back to these guys, um, over and over again, that would just leap out at me. So like Johann Friedrich Overbeck, an artist, he was a Protestant, converted to Catholicism after he came to Rome. He lived with other artists, uh, of Germans, Austrians, in Rome in an old Franciscan monastery that had been secularized by Napoleon. And they formed a, a little quasi-monastic brotherhood there to sustain them in the spiritual life, which was nurturing their art. There are this expression of that. Um, you have Pugin, by the end of his life, creates the Grange, his home, this beautiful home built in a Gothic style, but really a, a modern expression or modern vernacular of, of the Gothic medium by then, with his own church, St. Augustine of Canterbury, that he built right next door. Beautiful, beautiful structure, really his crown jewel. Um, and what Pugin was striving after was a familial life to sustain him in his faith and in his work. Uh, and seeking out that. The, the Jesuits, Giovanni Perrone, 
when he has to go in exile from Rome and he comes to England and he's received by a Jesuit community and he thrives within that community and he contributes so much to that community. Um, that's what sustains him then in those periods of exile. Newman, you know, Newman really went from the common room of Oriel College, where in those days they were always celibate men who lived in the colleges, and if you married, then you couldn't remain living in the college. He went from that to creating a little quasi-monastic foundation, a little more just as he resigned his position at St. Mary the Virgin and was moving towards uh, entering into full communion with the Catholic Church, and many of the individuals there at Littlemore did become Catholic. And then when he got to Rome, he was still seeking ways of living the common life as a Catholic priest, and for him that was the oratory in the end. Um, some some authors suggest, some Newman scholars suggest that really what Newman was trying to do was recreate the Oriel College mm-hmm. common room, yeah. but as mm-hmm. a Catholic priest, and so it was the oratory. But each of them has this insight into the fact that we need a community to sustain us in the faith especially amid, amid the, the, the cultural wars in which we find ourselves. So I think that's, that's just crucial, even for today. Uh, we, we really can't do any of this on our own. Yeah. And ultimately, it's, it's what the Church is. It's, it's saying the Church is a community of believers, and it's within this community then that we are nurtured and we find the strength to really evangelize, to go forth. It's not about uh, being isolated and separated, because none of these men wanted to separate themselves from the world. But at the same time, they knew they needed that foundation to be able to engage the world in a way that would be constructive and healthy for them as well. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash catholic studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Now, you've spoken very movingly of the Bernardi residence, so the, uh, the residence in Rome where St. Thomas Catholic Studies undergraduates and graduates stay. Um, yes. And you've spoken of, you know, Newman's various communities and Overbeck's. But, uh, you know, one of the questions is, well, what, what communities now can we go to? I mean, is, is many people think parish life in the U.S. Pr- churches and probably in many other places in the world is, largely dead. Is the answer the new religious communities? Is it newer religious communities that have yet to be founded? Oratory. The oratory. oratory. <laughs> right. I mean, um, what, where, do you see, where do you see hope uh, springing up in community life in the Catholic faith? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think that parish life in the United States, at least, is kaput. I, my experience of parishes in the U.S. when I'm home is often a very dynamic experience. I end up in really good parishes when I'm visiting, and but I, I have a very positive experience, much more so than Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think parish life, at least parish life on the continent, has suffered greatly. That's why the movements, so the neocatechumenate, for example, communion and liberation, and a variety of other new movements within the life of the Church, I believe have taken off much more powerfully in Europe than, say, they have perhaps in the United States. Not that they haven't here. 
but they have a greater impact in Europe because of the impoverishment of the parishes there. Whereas here, the parishes are still providing well, you know, really good structures. Um, I think of a parish in uh, outside of Chicago in, in the Rockford Diocese where um, the pastor has just got a very clear vision. He's he's just spot on, and um, that place is thriving because again, the vision of good leadership and the pastor. Uh, a deeply traditional parish when you look at it from the outside. Um, they they have Eucharistic adoration twenty four hours a day there. There is a strong devotional life, confessions offered regularly and just with people participating all the time. It's it's very inspiring. And I here in, in Tampa, there's a parish where I had helped out for two years as a young priest, very strong men's group uh, that is, is drawing the, the laymen together with good lay leadership there. There's a former student at the Jesuit High School here who is creating now a new experience for post graduate guys, say, in the mid-20s, who he has known from when he was in high school here, who are not practicing their faith, and he's reaching out to them and creating an environment. Uh, in Milwaukee, there is, for example, former students of the Catholic Studies Program, they've created uh, a weekly experience there for young people. There's also a Lourdes there in Minneapolis, and again, former member of Catholic Studies spearheading that. So the oratory, the, the, the uh, young clergy, more and more, I find, among the seminarians and the young clergy, they desire fraternity in the common life mm-hmm. to be able to, to live faithfully their own priesthood. So there's there's many different realities and possibilities and options out there. Obviously, re- new religious communities, um, not everybody's going to go off and be a religious, uh, but those communities, the newer communities, often have kind of satellite membership, you will, I don't know, kind of associates, where, yeah. where they people can plug into those communities and and that becomes the, the, the powerhouse for them where they can plug in and, and be a part of that. So there's there's many different ways of, of living this. Um, and I just, an individual could be, yeah. to be a bit proactive perhaps and go out and find, you know, yeah. well, what, what's here in my diocese? And there, there, are, um, there are many options and possibilities. There's been so much civil unrest in the U.S. in the last year. Uh, a colleague of mine mentioned that there's a lawlessness that has been unleashed, and we see this. And I think one of the things that I found so hopeful about your article was what you said earlier. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, there's no. uh, uh, this is maybe a cycle <laughs> that the human experience uh, has to go through, where there's a retrieval of what has been lost and a revitalization of that. Uh, but that's one thing I really want to tell listeners to do, encourage them to read the article if they are feeling sort of the weight of of some of the um, uh, hopelessness that we see in the news and uh, to be reminded that we do have the means and the methods to uh, embrace and interact with the current cultural crises that are out there. Right. Well, you know, uh, what inspired these men in the 19th century and what will inspire us as well, it's the gospel. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it's the gospel. Mm-hmm. They're utterly convinced of the truth of the gospel, and remaining in the truth of Christ is, is crucial for them. And that the the answers are not answers that factor God out of the equation. Yes. Yeah. And today, that's 
that's the same answer. You know, it, it, we're not, we can't factor God out of the equation. And the civil unrest will just continue. Uh, there, there is a deep spiritual malaise that's also revealing itself uh, in the midst of, of all of this. So, yeah, the I, and it is been it's been very disturbing to to see the civil unrest, the riots, the destruction, um, and to ask ourselves, well, okay, well, what's at the root of all of this? It's obviously a variety of things, and there's no easy answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing new either, uh, and uh, that's that was. The 19th century, it's been true. The 20th century, I mean, we, we, haven't, we haven't lived in a world war in this period, um, thanks be to God. And even the present pandemic has, has certainly been a time of great trial. When, when, the stu- when our students left Rome in the spring of 2020, when, when the colleges went into exile, the North American College closed down for the first time since the Second World War when the students had to leave Rome. Uh, so really a historic moment, uh, a jarring moment, a traumatic moment. Uh, certainly I, I suffered from that my own you know, spiritually, mentally, when when the students were all leaving Rome and I was locked away in a building for two months. And there is a, uh, some, a lethargy started settling in, a certain sense of despair that you, know, you, you had to keep at bay and saying, well, wait a minute, our, our hope is in the Lord and the Lord will indeed provide and let us see with the eyes of faith how he's providing in this very moment. For us, and one of the things I kept reminding myself is, okay, well, while this is really a difficult moment, it's traumatic for me. It's traumatic for the students. People are going into exile. We've closed the doors of the university. We're trying to scramble to figure out how to do everything online. I thought, okay, but in 1847, there were crowds surrounding the Roman College, threatening to burn the building down. Right, right. And throughout 1848. Mobs of urchins would go around at night screaming death to the Jesuits. Right. And then on March you know, 29th, they taught their last day, and the next day they're throwing off their Jesuit cassock and putting on the cassock of secular priests so they won't be identified on the street, right. fleeing for their lives. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, it's really not that bad. You know? <laughs> right, right. Right. You know, I like that, that you point us back to this wholehearted trust in Christ. Um, yes. But a big part of your article is about looking back through these great treasures, not just looking back through all of the chaos that's been happening since the beginning and especially since the 16th century, but looking back to particular moments. To whom are people today who are starting these movements looking back to? Are they looking back to Augustine? Are they looking back to, you know, Benedict? Are they looking back to Aquinas? I mean, my Thomist friends always say the answer to everything is go to (laughs) Thomas. Um, Who are they looking to? And maybe who do you think they should be looking to? All right. Um, that's a very good question, because in the tradition, uh, John Henry Newman identified the dynamic of development in continuity. Mm-hmm. And as an Anglican Tractarian, uh, Newman, along with his associates, Edward Pusey and others, they looked to the 4th and 5th centuries as providing the standard by which they would judge all things for the sake of Anglican ecclesiastical reform. And so they were canonizing the 4th and 5th centuries in particular. And it was a a retrieval, in in a real sense a retrieval, because Anglicanism had lost so much and had become very Protestant. And so they were retrieving what had been lost. It was a a real hermeneutic of discontinuity operative there. And uh, at first, Newman was fine with that. He creates the Via Media, which he later says was a paper religion. It was never real. 
and and it collapses when he recognizes this development of doctrine in continuity, and when he discovers that that development of doctrine has always existed in the Catholic Church, and that the contemporary Catholic Church is the Church of the Fathers. He mm-hmm. he discovers the Church of the Fathers in the contemporary Catholic Church. At that point, his Eumedia collapses and he was born, enters into full communion. So what did, what did Newman discover? He discovered that you, while there are normative periods in the life of the Church, you cannot canonize any one period to the detriment of posterior development. And so... Initially, he was looking to canonize the 4th and 5th centuries and say anything that happened after that was just a Roman corruption. So, and then we've got to scrape those barnacles off the side of the boat, you know? Mm-hmm. And then he realized, oh, no, those aren't corruptions. But in fact, that's a development under the guidance of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. as the Church's discipline and ritual continues to unfold and as we grow in deeper and deeper knowledge of the truth that Christ has fully revealed. So it's a fidelity to the apostolic deposit of faith. There's no augmenting the apostolic deposit of faith. That's in, there is in its fullness. But our understanding of it grows, and there's a vital reality as it's unfolding uh, that, that enriches the Church in each age. But there are normative moments along the way. And Newman even said later, after uh, to, to Edward Pusey, I think it was in the 1860s, he said, you know, I appreciate the scholastics. Um, I don't disdain them, but my preference will always be for the fathers, because the right. fathers made me Catholic. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to knock the ladder down that, um, from underneath me that led me to the Church. And, and he said that they, they remain normative for me, not to the detriment of recognizing a development that takes place. So along in that vital process of development, there are normative moments. The Fathers being clearly a foundational moment. Thomas Aquinas is a normative moment, um, inasmuch as Thomas is able to synthesize the patristic tradition in a masterful way. So if you read the Terni Patri, Leo XIII's encyclical, in which he reestablishes uh, Thomistic Studies University in the Church, and in fact, the University of St. Thomas is founded uh, as a result of Eterni Patris. It was yeah. part of that response to found universities under the patronage of Thomas for the sake of this revival and this retrieval. And um, But the reason Thomas gets recommended by Leo, and only halfway through the encyclical, you have to read the first half, you have to go through the whole first half of the encyclical that only talks about the fathers of the Church. Right. And only in the middle of the encyclical does Thomas' name show up. Mm-hmm. His name shows up only then. And he gets recommended because he masterfully sentences the patristic tradition. So then he becomes another one of these normative moments. But it would be a, a wrong to simply say, well, Thomas has said it all, and so we're going to stop now. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Or it would also be incorrect to say, I don't need to read the Fathers, because Thomas summarized all of them in the Summa, so I'll just read the Summa. Well, but that's also mistaken, because Thomas didn't actually summarize everything the Fathers had to say. He clarifies their thoughts. He brings Augustine's uh, great theology forward, for example, in a masterful way. I'm not denying any of that. But I, I think it's important to say, okay, yes to Thomas, but also yes to the Father. So there's yeah. a continuity of thought. And then to recognize that the life of the Church continued to move forward. And so then you have Trent, and you, you now have the Second Vatican Council. So there are normative periods yeah. that uh, and definitive acquisitions along the way, which will never set aside, no, no doctrinal reversal here, but 
also to recognize that we need to be able to move forward. So who to whom do we look? Well, I would say we look now, again, to the tradition in its fullness, to those normative moments. We, we recognize that and appreciate it. We um, try to, to reap fruit that perhaps others have not seen in the exact same light. Now, in the light of our own age and the needs of our own age, um, so it's really a, a, a Catholic vision that I, I would encourage, yeah. and that's clearly what these thinkers were doing as well. Um, they, in, the, in the article that, that I wrote, I did quote C.S. Lewis, which he, he says, you know, if you want to move forward, but you, you're on the wrong path, you took the wrong path, you need to go backwards in order to get the right path and move forward again. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what they were doing to reclaim the tradition so as to move forward, not simply to stay in the past. You talk about questions that animated the 19th century, faith and reason, mm-hmm. this development of doctrine, the nature of the church, Amerian questions. Yes. Um, are, are yes. the, what, what are the questions for today that, that we should be thinking about? What's, what direction are things going and where, where should we put our sort of intellectual energy in terms of the topics? Okay, well... I don't know that they're all that different, to be quite frank. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. right. um, faith and reason remains a perennial question. We've got to get faith and reason right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we don't, we're going to have real problems. And a collateral to that would also be the nature and grace question. Because if you think faith and reason, faith, grace, nature, yeah. reason. Um, so that, that's, that's crucial. Those questions are crucial. The proper balance is crucial, and that remains so. Also, development of doctrine. In the recent synods on marriage, all of a sudden we're hearing all about the development of doctrine again. But unfortunately, um, it's being invoked in an erroneous and fallacious manner. Because development of doctrine sounds like the introduction of novelty. Right. Uh, When you really start listening to what was being said. The other thing that struck me at the time of those synods was they would say something that was really novel, and then they would just go, oh, this is a development. This is development of doctrine. Right, I thought, you know, right. in antiquity, uh, nobody did something and said, oh, look, that's a development. You know, hundreds of years went by before anybody looked back and went, oh, you can clearly now see the pattern of development. Right, right, and right. so I, I was kind of amazed how quickly people would do things and just simply write it off as a development and say, well, that's legitimate. Okay, now let's go on. Like, uh, no, that's actually a doctrinal reversal, and so that doesn't even fit Newman's category. Right, right, right. Uh, so there you have that. Again, the, the Marian question, well, the Marian question in the 19th century was key because what it, it, it did was is it focused completely the whole dynamic of retrieving the tradition. How, how can we recognize what we've always believed from the beginning when the evidence is sparse in those first centuries, the pre-Nicene centuries, the first three centuries. And then if there are discordant voices in the tradition that seem to suggest that this hasn't always been part of our faith, how to discern your way through all of that? And so the whole question of the Immaculate Conception in the, in the heart of the 19th century that provides a theological methodology that, that's very helpful still today in terms of how to do theology. And again, obviously, the ecclesiological questions, which began um, in the 19th century, many people think, okay, well, it's Vatican I, papal infallibility, and that was it. Well, papal infallibility was part of it, papal primacy was part of it, but there was a lot more going on at the ecclesiological level in, in the, the, these theologians' discussions. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't simply limited to that. That was the most obvious thing for us now. But those questions are still very real. And all of the debates now going on in Germany in the synodal way, and what does it mean to be the church, et cetera, and so on. 
Um, so I, I, as I said earlier in, in our discussion, uh, the first battles of the 21st century cultural wars were fought in the 19th century. Yes. And these guys were on the front lines, and they still have a lot to teach us today. And those dynamics, those questions remain vital today. Well, I may be biased, but I mean, it's, as a student of Newman, it sounds to me like you're saying the key figure is Newman in many ways. <laughs> well, Newman is a key figure. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't say he's the only figure. Right. Uh, certainly for Anglo-Saxons, he's key because we know him so well. Uh, and you, you would, uh, this article is, is, in fact, the expression of, of a uh, much broader research on my part. Um, I've just finished the manuscript, finally, uh, last month of a book project that I've been working on since I became chaplain uh, for the Catholic Studies program in 2005 is when I started. There's a photograph of me with the students in the first semester, and I'm holding on to a work of Johanna de Murder uh, in, in St. Peter's Basilica because we had gone to some event, and, you know, you're there sitting for two hours beforehand, so I just took whatever I was reading at the time and read it. And that marks for me clearly the beginning of that research. And the article gave me an opportunity also to do a fair amount with art and architecture, simply because at one point, as I'm doing all this theological work, I began to realize, well, wait a minute, there were other retrievals going on. There was other mm-hmm. revivals. They were going on at the exact same time, all the neo-Gothic architecture, right. mm-hmm. the, um, the pre-Raphaelite movement of, in England, uh, beautiful religious art. And so I was like, okay, wait a minute, it can't be by chance. There must be something here, there's some commonality. And that's what that article was dedicated to, it gave me a place to make good use of all my work reading on neo-Gothic architecture. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Father Corolla. It's been a delight to speak to you. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's been a joy to be with you all and to plug back into the Catholic Studies program. Indeed. Keep in touch. Liz, thank you for being with us. Yes, absolutely, Father. It was wonderful to have you. Yeah, nice speaking with you, Liz. I mean, good to hear your voice and to remember all the fond memories of your own time in Rome. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been another great episode of Deep Down Things, a podcast initiative of St. Thomas Catholic Studies and Catholic Answers. I'm your host, Dave Devil, along with co-host Liz Kelly. We've been speaking to Father Joseph Carolla of the Gregorian University in Rome. We thank you for joining us, you the listener. We hope that you will keep in touch with us and check us out at our Patreon site, patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's all one word, patreon.com backslash deep down things. Go there to continue the conversation. God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.